Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Well, at the start of the week, a corner of a Grade One monument building collapsed at the former Central Police Station. The huge compound houses 16 historic buildings, and it was hoped that it could open later this year with restaurants, performance venues, offices for NGOs, among other facilities. Now many people are asking what happened to the wall of the former inspectors' marriage quarters, which was built in 1864. Katie Law, co-convener of the Central and Western Concern Group and a regular on the programme, told me about the history of the site and how she hopes conservation can be taken forward following this sad event. Well, I went down uh, on the very night after hearing the news and I, I rushed to the site and, you know, what I feel is like a disaster which has happened because the collapse is quite a large-scale collapse and because it's near the um, entrance of the central police station compound so all the debris and building materials which came down in fact blocked the entrance uh, the pathway to the police station it's like a war zone you know i'm sure everyone couldn't have imagined uh, that could happen here in hong kong especially with a site uh, which is under renovation and restoration so it's a a very shocking experience for everyone. It seems that there will be now multiple investigations and inquiries. I think that is definitely a must to conduct an independent investigation into the causes of this uh, incident because the renovation has been going on since the site was handed over to um, Jockey Club. There are many people working on this site, professionals, um, conservation architects, engineers, contractors, and and it's already um, nearing the completion stage. And I heard that uh, the site uh, could be opened by the end of this year if everything goes well. And so um, what happened um, to the, in the collapse is really uh, still a misery to many people because um, you would have imagined uh, the buildings uh, is now restored to a certain stage uh, of perfection. And uh, already um, the site is uh, receiving uh, tour groups and, and visitors. So we must understand what causes this collapse because it's really very, very important. It also has implication to other 15 historic buildings as well. I think... Uh, Within the compound? Within the compound, there are altogether 16 historic buildings and uh, two new buildings. And um, I think it's very important that the government and the Jockey Club also conduct uh, safety checks on other buildings as well. If we look at the former Central Police Station, it was a series of buildings over a number of decades. First of all, the the police station was one of the earliest um, buildings during the uh, very early colonial period in the mid-1850s or even earlier. And then it grew into a series of buildings which um, included a police station, um, a prison and also a magistracy. So um, we can say that the, the police station compound now is like a one-stop shop for you know, law and order in Hong Kong. The buildings and, and all the structures within the compound is also really imposing in, uh, in the setting. And uh, of course, it has to um, give an impression you know, of this authority 
um, to the people. So um, if you go to the site now, you can see various parts of the building, uh, including um, the grand facade of the uh, police station. And if you go into the site, you can uh, also see other parts of the building, which include some of the um, quarters. Uh, for example, the collapsed building is a, a marriage inspector quarters, which is also one of the oldest uh, buildings in the site. There's also uh, the barracks. You can see also the, the parade ground. And as you go more uh, up the site, um, you will find the, the prisons. And there are several blocks of the prisons. To the east of the site is the central magistracy. And so the entire compound is really huge and compact. Um, altogether, there are originally um, 18 historic buildings. But during this restoration, two were pulled down to accommodate the new built structures. One is an exhibition venue, and the other is a performance venue. Now, when I think about the fact that, you know, whenever you had a new colonial power arriving in an area, such as the British in this case, you know, the first things that you would build, it seems to me, were the... Well, you had Flagstaff House, that's pretty much the oldest western building in Hong Kong and uh, that of course is the Tiwa Museum in Hong Kong Park but uh, you would you would really in the early years you'd establish Victoria Prison but you need you know so once uh, people had been condemned in the magistracy they needed somewhere to be incarcerated uh, you can imagine in the courtyard at the central police station that you'd have had people in stocks uh, as a punishment I had a walk around there when the police cleared out in about uh, the turn you know 2000 2001 uh, with an architect and uh, they're, they're lovely structures with the balustrades and the, the balconies and also the, the cells, the prison cells might lend, lend themselves to, to something. The, the police station part, they're all really beautiful colonial style buildings, each with uh, very um, unique characteristics because they performed very different functions at that time. Also very interesting and worth seeing are the prison cells, as you said, because you can really understand how uh, people became prison at, at that time and they're really small and confined cells. It's a bit sad, you know, going in there but somehow um, that's part of our history and uh, that's how uh, law and order uh, was, uh, you know, taking place in Hong Kong at that time. And uh, as to the magistracy, it's a very grand building and uh, you've got the law courts in there. And uh, so the entire compound as a whole is a really a very interesting and integrated um, historic site which managed to um, tell the story of Hong Kong, uh, how it became a British colony and uh, how, you know, the people are, you know, put under the law and order of the um, colonial uh, power. On any given day, the trials and tribulations of colonial life played out at the central police station. The precinct was a one-stop justice shop, arrest at the police station, a hearing at the magistracy and, depending on the verdict, internment in the prison. There was always plenty of copy for the local papers, apart from the arrests and court hearings, from suicides of depressed young officers not suited to police life, to the publication of resignation letters addressed to the colonial governor of officers, requesting release when the terms and conditions of employment offered up in London didn't match the reality on the ground. To an Indian officer killing a Lukong in the mess hall before killing himself. Chinese officers were known as Lukongs. 
Here are the reports on activity at the Central Police Station from the China Mail on Saturday the 17th of December 1898. Between three and four o'clock this morning, a Lu Kong on duty in Graham Street captured a sea otter, which he killed with his truncheon and took to the Central Police Station. About five o'clock yesterday afternoon, it was reported at the Central Police Station that a Chinese man and woman had been found dead in bed in a boarding house at number 45 Prior Central. From inquiries made, it was learned that the couple had arrived from Canton on the evening of the 15th and rented the room. Next morning, they were served breakfast at 9 o'clock when they appeared to be in good health. Nothing more was heard of the people until about 5 o'clock in the evening when the servant, on going into the room to serve the evening meal, found the man and woman lying dead in bed. It is supposed that they died of opium poisoning. Yesterday morning, a vicious dog belonging to Mr. A.C. Botelho, a clerk in the harbour office, bit several Chinese in the street, and complaints having been lodged with the police, the dog was captured and taken to the central police station. This morning, Mr. Botelho was charged at the magistracy with allowing a vicious dog to be at large, and Commander Hastings ordered the three complainants to be paid $1 each in compensation and the dog to be destroyed. Now, the fact that a lot of Hong Kong is on a hill, so this is built on, on well, it, it's, it's quite a complex that goes from Hollywood Road down to Pottinger Street. Um, but would there have been issues, you know, with the foundations? Uh, how would they have made, been able to build this on a slope? I'm sure when they first uh, built uh, this site, they have somehow have to level the slopes in order to uh, build such a big uh, buildings on this site. And I think all over the city of Victoria, as it was built on the slope, so um, they have to do this process, is leveling the slope, build some um, retaining walls to, you know, uh, to strengthen the slope and then to build the buildings. So um, th- these... Uh, terraces and uh, retaining walls are common features of the city of Victoria. You can find them along Hollywood Road as you go from um, the Central Police Station compound up to the um, PMQ, which is the um, the police married quarters. You can see a big... Uh, I mean, that's a much more modern building. Yeah, the building is uh, modern, but, you know, the retaining walls along Hollywood Road with the beautiful wall trees, and all these are features which um, remind us of the um, ge- ge- uh, geological and also the physical um, environment. The whole compound has monument status. What does that mean in terms of its protection in Hong Kong? Declared monuments are, the, of course, the highest um, grade of um, historic buildings in Hong Kong, uh, which are protected by law. As to the rest of other graded buildings, like the grade 1, 2, 3, they are only administrative gradings, which do not um, have legal protection. So, um, well, I can say that the Central Police Station compound is one of the most important monuments in Hong Kong. But so is it now unsafe? After what happened, a few night, a few days ago, the collapse of the building it really um, raised a, an alarm to all of us that we're talking about conservation and restoring historic building, but something must have gone wrong in this process. And of course, um, I'm not going to um, speculate because um, an investigation is going on at the moment about the uh, causes of this collapse. But on the whole, I would say that um, 
the government as well as um, the community needs to look at um, conservation projects and which are in fact um, doing making a lot of um, intervention and uh, perhaps sometimes quite aggressive intervention into the historic uh, fabric of the site. So you're saying that uh, prospectively building new buildings around an old building isn't the way to go in your view? Uh, it's not it's adding a lot of um, pressure to the um, historic site. For example, as I say, two big new buildings have been built on either side, one on um, you know, O'Bailey Street and the other one on the other side. And uh, not only that, the site and the buildings within have to be converted to accommodate uh, modern uses. For example, um, there will be lots of, um, for example, commercial outlets, retail, food and beverages outlets, as well as other many different uses, performance use or art uh, culture uses. For, for example, they will need a lot of air conditioning within the site, which previously there, there is none. And uh, that's why they need to build, for example, a huge underground plant room which are now hidden underneath the uh, parade ground. So there have been lots of excavation on the side, a lot of uh, some piling and drilling and things like that. So in a way, um, the historic fabric have been affected. But we won't imagine uh, that uh, the things go to such an extreme that a building is now collapsed. So what goes wrong? in this process is very important to find out. Obviously, the investigation has to take place. I personally can't see how this complex can now open in a few months. Well, um, the investigation has to take place and also um, the government and jockey club has to conduct safety checks to other buildings as well. So there will be some delays in this uh, uh, in the opening. They also have to consider uh, what to do with that building, uh, which a, a part of it has collapsed. So uh, are they going to rebuild it and how to ensure its safety? I think this is the most important factor. As long as they, they need to ensure the safety of people using this uh, site. So I, I, I'm sure they need to take several months to leave. But the fact that it's a grade one monument, is that going to save it from uh, people just saying, oh, they're unsafe, they've got to go? I hope people uh, still realise that uh, this is a very important heritage. Yeah, site. but the grade one monument status, what protection does that afford in Hong Kong? Or is it just a label? Uh, the declare monument label is very important because um, it really means that it must be preserved. Under um, law? Yes. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, you have to do all, everything, you know, in your best capacity to preserve this site because of its historical significance. This is a great big whopping example of British colonial heritage and also uh, imposing a rule of law and sticking people in stocks in prison. Do you think that there will be some who see that this is rather convenient and that, that it would be rather nice to make this British colonialism disappear? Some people may, I have to say. I mean, same with uh, the, um, the, the thing that they propose uh, to remove the, the royal insignia from the uh, post boxes, right? Um, some people may want to get rid of the um, colonial uh, symbols, for example. But I think 
th- those are just a few, maybe. Um, most Hong Kong people, I think, um, especially after the handover, um, we gradually understand um, our identity and our history a bit more. And to um, uphold our identity as a very, very special part of China, because this is our real history. This is the history of Hong Kong. It is nothing shameful about uh, that period. And the colonial period, uh, for as long as it is, you know, is in fact a very important part of our history. So no matter it is, you know, a police station, a prison, a church, it means something to us. And we have to embrace it, you know. So I think um, this is my view uh, of heritage conservation, to understand uh, our past so that we know, you know, you know, what our path in the future is. Tell me about when, you, when you've gone around, what did it feel like to be in a former prison cell? I mean, are they small? Are they damp? Oh, yeah. When we had the first chance to go in the prison, we were really excited because um, for a long time, this place is, uh, you know you know, forbidden place that um, normally we won't have the chance to go in except for reporting to the police when when I lost my wallet. I mean, that's the only time I... (laughs) Did you get your wallet back? I forgot, really. (laughs) Probably not. It's the only time that I um, went into the police station. But I remember in about 2005, um, there was an open day um, organized by the district council. And it was the first time that I I could go into the police station compound with my family. And uh, we were really excited. And there were many people there. And uh, some guided tours uh, organized by architects, etc. And we were really curious. I mean, really out of curiosity, what was inside a police station? What, what is, was it like in a prison cell? So it's really a, a great uh, learning experience for us because um, uh, before that, we, we don't know what's inside. And in fact, going in there um, you know, allows us to have this atmosphere of you know, understanding the history of this place past. And uh, you, you have a more better idea of you know, what a prison cell looked like. It's really small. And, I'm, and I told my kids, oh, okay, if you do bad things, you're going to end up in here. <laughs> Katie Law there of the Central and Western Concern Group. It's my understanding that Katie's children are now thriving at university and not languishing in some Victoria prison cell. My thanks also to RTHK's Todd Harding for the use of his voice. Robert Neild came on the programme a few months ago to talk about Hong Kong's beginnings as a free port, which made things a bit tricky as the mainland charged duties. Robert is the author of China's Foreign Places, the foreign presence in China in the Treaty Port era, 1840 to 1943. Here he takes the story forward from a 20-year customs blockade. Just to, to bring up to speed again where we were last time we spoke, Second Opium War, 1858, Treaty of Tientsin made opium legal. Before that it had been an illegal substance, as it is today, of course. But the 1858 Treaty made it a legal, tradable commodity. Hong Kong, right from the outset as a British colony, was 
a free port, which means there's no duty on anything. Opium was declared legal in China by this treaty in 1858, but at the same time a huge duty was levied on it. And so smuggling was, was obviously big business. 1867, the Guangdong Customs Authority set up customs stations around Hong Kong because Hong Kong was seen to be a little bit of a fly in the ointment. Uh, fine, you have your free, uh, duty-free port, but it's impacting us, said China. So we're going to have customs stations around Hong Kong waters, close to Hong Kong, to try and stop this illegal trade coming into our country. It's not illegal in your colony, but as soon as it comes into our country, it is illegal, and we want to stop it, or at least charge the duty that should be paid. And this led to a blockade, um, because the, the customs authority thought, well, well, we don't know which junks are kosher and which are not, so we're going to stop all of them. But this blockade, I mean, it wasn't a few months, was it? It was 20 years in total. And it started uh, around about 1867. 1886, there was an opium agreement, uh, which Hong Kong was a party to. And by that agreement, uh, Hong Kong agreed to control the import and export of opium. Uh, it couldn't ban it, because in Hong Kong it, wasn't, uh, it was a legally traded uh, substance anyway. There was no duty in Hong Kong, but as a, a sort of practical uh, favour, if you like, Hong Kong agreed to control the import and export of opium. And by about 1890, the, the new system was working relatively smoothly. In my book, China's Foreign Places, there is a chapter on Kowloon. It was at Kowloon that the Chinese customs station was based. In the Kowloon Walled City was the, uh, the headquarters of the, the customs operation. The Hong Kong Chamber of Commerce, which was largely British, of course, in those days, was dead against having a custom house within Hong Kong, because they said, we're duty-free. Anyway, we're a British sovereign territory. Uh, for those two reasons, we don't want a foreign custom house in our territory. It's, it would reduce, they said, Hong Kong to the level of a mere treaty port which is putting all these treaty ports very much in their place. We're not a treaty port, we're a crown colony. And we don't want your foreign customs house, even though, <laughs> strangely, largely, they were run by British people working for the Chinese government, but we don't want that in the crown colony of Hong Kong. What, what I also find interesting is that we're just talking there about 1871. This is just about 30 years after the British have first come to Hong Kong. So when you did your research, did you find it impressive how far they'd come along in terms of setting all of these aspects up, or did you find them quite slow? It was impressive in that when Hong Kong first uh, was settled by the British in, in 1841 and then became formally a colony in 1842, it was by no means certain that it had a future at all. Some people said, well, let's hold it as a base for servicing the treaty ports up and down the coast because it would be useful to have a sort of wharfage and, and go-downs and things to look after the, the real business up and down the coast. There were people who said, uh, well, let's hold it as an indemnity. We've got a bit of China, so they're going to listen to us if for future negotiations. But there were some, like Henry Pottinger, the first governor of Hong Kong, who said, it's going to be a major commercial place in its own right. And, of course, he was, he, he was right, and it did become a major commercial place. But to answer your question, yes, it, it's impressive how things uh, developed, given that there was such confusion as to whether the place should be retained uh, at all. What I've got here from the National Archives in London is copies of a couple of maps of 1867, 1868, 
And here you can see the familiar outline of Hong Kong Island and Lantau. But around the, the harbour, you can see a number of places marked. That There's Cap uh, Soi Mun marked here, and there's a few others. 1868, Hong Kong was this island and a little bit of the Kowloon Peninsula there. So these marked in red are outside Hong Kong. They're Chinese territory, and they're pretty close to Hong Kong, and the idea was to have uh, customs... Uh, stations here from which boats could go and intercept junks going either uh, right to the east out of the harbour or to the west out of the harbour. Not much went south because that's the open sea down there. So people would have tried to smuggle their items up north? Yes, smuggling up and down the coast out of duty-free Hong Kong. Things could come into Hong Kong perfectly freely. Uh, They could go out of Hong Kong perfectly freely. But as soon as they crossed this border, which you can see is basically the harbour into China... That's when duties became payable. And the First Opium War and the Second Opium War were fought largely because the duty system was so unclear. Battles had been fought, wars had been fought, to establish a duty system that was clear. So therefore, the the British felt they had to honour the the fact that they'd fought for these duties. But at the same time, Hong Kong was duty-free. China, you have duties, but that's your problem, not ours. So then we had this sort of impasse of the custom stations around Hong Kong. And these custom stations, very small, about four or five of them, they were given the job of trying to intercept junks going from Hong Kong into China and vice versa. So this at the time when you're talking 1870s, this is all by sail. So if you had, you'd have had sailing junks and then maritime police here who were also sailing out. All by sail, yes. Um, There were steamers coming in from the 1870s onwards, but the steamers were foreign-owned. Initially, uh, the the Chinese law forbade Chinese to own a steamship. So steamships were going from Hong Kong up and down the coast to treaty ports. That's the only place they were allowed to go. And the junks were used for perfectly legitimate trade, offloading from steamers in Hong Kong Harbour and taking cotton and woolen things up and down the coast, but also taking contraband up and down the coast as well. So yes, it's all sailing junks we're talking about. And to, to think of a sailing junk coming out of Cap Mun here, which is Ma Wan now in the um, top right-hand corner of, of Lantau Island, to think of a sailing junk coming out of there to intercept the sailing junk coming out of the harbour probably talking about a two or three day operation (laughs) on a day like this when there's very little wind but yes we're talking about sailing junks so these are the custom stations around hong kong on this map of 1868 which china had set up to uh, try and intercept illegal trade now what happens next is that um, 1898 came along. 1898 is when the new territories were leased. 1842, you've just got Hong Kong Island. And then 1860, you add on the Kowloon Peninsula. 1898, we've now got the new territories as well. Yeah. So, very, very big change. For the purpose of of, um, controlling the border, the border went from three and a half miles to 60 (laughs) 60 miles, the land border. And the sea line... Uh, of the sea part of the border went from 20 to 80. Now, all these custom stations, as I showed you on the map, were outside Hong Kong harbour, but now all of a sudden they became within Greater Hong Kong because of the new territory's lease. Now, Robert Hart, who was the Inspector General of the Chinese Maritime Customs, he was a, a British uh, from Northern Ireland, he's a British uh, national, but working for the Chinese government. He said, um, could we keep them where they are? And the British community said very politely, 
There's no way you can keep these inside Hong Kong. So what happened was a whole string of 17 other custom stations had to be set up in lieu of the four or five that were there before. Now, what I've done on Google Earth, by reference to old maps and as much information as I can find, I've identified these 17 places and you can see they go from Lintin Island through Shenzhen along the border round Mears Bay down to a place called Samun. Would it have been one man in a house? I mean what, what did you actually have there? It probably was one man in a house and um, the, the larger ones or maybe one in every three or four would have had a European station there. The, the Kowloon Customs operation at its height of operation had something like 60 or 70 Europeans working for the Kowloon Customs and 700 Chinese staff. It was a mega organisation. So what, what would they be involved in? They would have been involved in um, <coughs> trying to control shipping, boarding ships, measuring what was there, charging duty when it was needed to be charged. My thanks to Robert Neald and Katie Law. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>